0: The Doctrine of the Authenticity of the Bible What is history, and how did we get it? Ancient written records are compared, and archaeological discoveries are analyzed and studied over against the written records of antiquity. To determine what is history versus fiction, the following tests are used for written records. Oldest document takes precedence, those nearest the event. The number of documents available, the number of mistakes in the various manuscripts, and the substance of the errors, the time interval between the event and the document. In summary, various external evidences, such as established contemporary events, rulers, names of cities civilizations known to exist at the time and archaeological records are compared and analyzed and conclusions drawn and codified although the bible is not a histor- history book the historical facts found in the bible in the bible are remarkably accurate let's begin by reviewing the sources of our old testament and how it measures up with ancient history. Actually, until the recent discoveries of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is the oldest extant Hebrew manuscript, our oldest Old Testament manuscript was dated at A.D. 900. Keep in mind, a manuscript as used in this doctrine may be only a small portion of an entire book inscribed on a vellum, parchment, scroll, papyrus, etc. The Dead Sea Scrolls contain parts of several Old Testament books, and the scrolls date back to the first century B.C. Before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, in 19... well, actually, between 1947 and 1954 there was an approximate gap of some 1,300 years between the event and the oldest Old Testament manuscript. The Old Testament being completed in about 425 B.C. and the oldest copy being 900 A.D. Well, we therefore had a 1,325-year hiatus. Now, with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, a number of Old Testament manuscripts were found which were dated before the time of Christ and when experts compared what we formerly had versus the newly discovered scrolls, there were remarkably, I mean remarkably, only a few minor errors and most involved only punctuation. More concerning, this comparison will indeed be provided later. The Christian can now take the Old Testament and say without fear, this is the Word of God. The Word of God handed down without essential loss from generation to generation. As we will see later, the New Testament has been studied and experts determined its accuracy is just a little short of miraculous. The Bible takes a back seat to no other document when one com- objectively compares it. In other words, when objectively compared. All the more remarkable is the fact that more than 40 men in three languages spanning 60 generations and 1,600 years have written the Bible from three different continents. This of unto to itself is an astounding feat. We will look at the accuracy factor of the numerous copies in great detail later, but for now it suffices to simply state that the accuracy of the Bible is nothing short of phenomenal. To understand the accuracy of the Old Testament copies, it is necessary to examine the extreme care in which copyists transcribe the Old Testament from year to year from many and varied manuscripts. The Talmudists, A.D. 100-500, spent a great deal of time cataloging Hebrew civil and canonical law. They had quite an intricate system for transcribing synagogue documents and scrolls, etc. Example. Example. Each copy had to be written on a skin of animal classified as clean. The skin had to be prepared in a special way. Every skin had to contain a certain number of columns. The length of each column had to extend over at least 48, but no more than 60 lines. Each line had to have at least 30 letters. The ink must be black and prepared according to a very special recipe. No word or letter could be written from memory. Between every consonant, the space of a hair or thread must intervene. Between every book, there must be three lines. The copyist must sit in full Jewish dress. Before beginning, the copyist must take a bath. Before writing the name of God, he must use a new pen dipped in a new bottle of ink. The existence of the many ancient copies of the Scripture is even the more remarkable given the repeated persecutions to the Jews and the large-scale destruction of their property, certainly to include their books, manuscripts, etc. That any of these remain at all is a tribute to God's intervention. This is especially evident given the Philistine, Egyptian, Assyrian, Babylonian, Persian, Turkish, German, Spanish, and Russian pogroms. The Masoretes, who worked oh, between A.D. 500 and 900, accepted the laborious job of editing the text and standardization excuse me, standardizing it. They added vowel points under the consonants to help with pronunciation. They were well disciplined and treated the text with the greatest imaginable reference and in fact devised a complicated system of safeguards against scribal error. They counted the number of times each letter of the alphabet occurred in each book. They pointed out the middle letter of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and the middle letter of the whole Hebrew Bible, and made even more detailed calculations to verify accuracy. They counted everything countable, and came up with a system of demonics by which the various totals might be readily remembered. Now concerning the accuracy of the transmission of the Hebrew text, Most scholars seem especially impressed. Robert Wilson, for example. Wilson, in his book entitled A Scientific Investigation of the Old Testament, was impressed to write, quoting now, in 144 cases of transliteration from Egyptian, Assyrian, Babylonian, and Moabite into Hebrew, and in 40 cases of the opposite, or 184 in all, The evidence shows that for 2,300 to 3,900 years, the text or the proper names in the Hebrew Bible has been transmitted with the most minute accuracy. Wilson went on to add, quoting again now, The proof that the copies of the original documents had been handed down with substantial correctness for 2,000 years cannot be denied. The fact that 40 kings living from 2000 B.C. to 400 B.C. appear in chronological order. With reference to the kings of other countries, no stronger evidence, continuing now to quote, no stronger evidence for the substantial accuracy of the Old Testament record could possibly be imagined. And mathematically, it is one chance in 753 to the 21st power, that is to say 750 plus a lot of zeros and all that proves that this accuracy is more significant and I, it's more, certainly more than circumstance. And that ends my quote from Wilson. Now going on. Concerning the accuracy of the transmission of the Hebrew text, the under librarian of li- the library at Cambridge University had this to say. He said, the "Little short of miraculous." And it will be helpful to review the major extant Hebrew text used in compiling our Old Testament, and that we shall do. So here goes with that helpful review, beginning first with Cairo Codex 8895, was produced by the Masoretic Asher family. And contains both latter and farmer prophets. It is one of the more important copies of the farmer and latter prophets. The Cairo Codex was copied by Moses ben Asher. A leader of the masterites in Tiberias, Palestine. Then we have Codex of the Prophets in Leningrad. AD 916. 916. Contains Isaiah. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve Minor Prophets. It is one of the three important manuscripts copied in the A.D. 900s. The oldest complete manuscript is Codex Babylonicus Petropolitanus, A.D. 1008. Now this document is located in Leningrad and was prepared from a corrected copy of Rabbi Ben Moses Ben Asher, Sometimes before oh, say AD one thousand. And then we have the Aleppo Codex eighty nine thirty. That's the oldest copy of the Hebrew Bible, and by the way, the most authoritative. It was copied by Aaron Ben Asher, and a tale of intrigue follows the copy. It had to be rescued from a burning synagogue in Aleppo, Syria, in nineteen forty-eight, and then to be had to be smuggled into Israel. Alright, let's take a look here at British Museum Codex AD 950. It contains part of Genesis through Deuteronomy. And then there's Rockland Codex of the Prophets AD 1105, which was a corrected copy of the writings of the Prophets dated sometime before 1105. The accuracy of these manuscripts has been corroborated by their faithfulness to the Septuagint. It was also corroborated by the translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, which was the Septuagint in approximately 250 BC, and then in the, and the Vulgate, which is a translation into Latin, completed by Jerome in AD 405, and most the strikingly faithfulness of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now let me provide several points about these scrolls. The big question, uh, does the Hebrew text, which we call Masoretic, really represent the Hebrew manuscripts? Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls provided a decided yes to this question. The problem before the scrolls, how accurate were the copies of our Old Testament since there was so distant, they were, in fact, so distant from the events. After all, they were copied so often over such a long period of time The scrolls are made up of some 40,000 inscribed fragments from which over 500 books have been reconstructed and translated into several languages. Many extra-biblical fragments were discovered and many secular records were also discovered from what is an early 1st century B.C. settlement of Essenes. Located some eight miles south of Jericho and just west of the Dead Sea in several Qumran caves. In the spring of 1947, a shepherd boy discovered by accident the scrolls, the scrolls that were in a cave and he was looking for lost sheep. They were bound in leather. The leather scrolls were wrapped in linen cloth in a clay jar. One of the scrolls was a complete Hebrew manuscript of the book of Isaiah. This scroll was dated at somewhere around 125 BC. This provided an excellent comparison with the prior oldest manuscript of Isaiah dated circa AD 900. As we will see in greater detail, the accuracy of the AD 900 copy will be proven remarkable given the comparison of the 125 B.C. manuscript of Isaiah, all thanks to the work of the Masoretic copyists. For example, of the 166 words in Isaiah, chapter 53, there are only 17 letters in question. Ten of these letters are simply a matter of spelling. Four more letters are minor stylistic changes, such as conjunctions. The remaining three letters comprise the word light, which is added in verse 11, and does not really affect the meaning, That is greatly affect the meaning. Thus, in one chapter of 166 words, there is only one word in question. After 1,000 years of transmission, and this word does not significantly change the meaning of the passage. Isaiah 53.11 he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. Now notice how the New International Version has translated that Isaiah fifty-three eleven verse. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Now a second incomplete scroll of Isaiah found the other that is above mentioned in Qumran cave number one. A second even agrees more closely with the first scroll designated Isaiah A. With reference to Isaiah B, Miller Burroughs in his book The Dead Sea Scroll has written, It is a matter of wonder that, though something like 1,000 years, the text underwent so little alteration. As I said in my first article concerning the scroll, the first teaching, actually, of that um, article concerning the scroll, here lies its chief importance, supporting the fidelity of the Masoretic tradition. The value of the scrolls, which were found in numerous caves over a six-year period, is inestimable. The scrolls not only shed light on the accuracy of the scrolls, but they also reflect the great schism between Judaism and Christianity, or as we know it, Paul in his many declarations of grace versus the legalism of Judaism and Judaistic Christianity. The scrolls were evidently placed there in A.D. 68 and in an effort in an effort to avoid the pervasive pillaging of the Roman military. Uh, it has been said of the scrolls, quoting now, the Dead Sea Scrolls, copied between 130 B.C. and A.D. 70, consist of 40,000 fragments. 500 books have been reconstructed from them, 100 of which are from the Old Testament in Hebrew. The only book of the Old Testament not represented is the book of Esther included is a complete manuscript of the Hebrew text of the book of Isaiah copied in 125 BC which is almost identical to the Masoretic text of 8916 that's the Leningrad codex of the prophets all this indicating the unusual accuracy of the masoretes as copies over the period of 1000 years their accuracy was absolutely phenomenal. The Septuagint substantiates the genuineness of the Hebrew text. During the reign of Ptolemy, Philadelphia of Egypt, approximately 285 to 246 B.C., the Old Testament was translated into the Koine Greek to provide a common language. Ptolemy was renowned as a patron of literature, and it was under him that the great the library at Alexander was established. But Ptolemy's librarian aroused the king's interest in the Jewish law and advised him to send a delegation to the high priest Eliezer at Jerusalem. The high priest selected 72 translators, we're told, who took up residence on the island of Pharos, where legend has it they completed their work in 72 days. It is generally agreed only the Pentateuch was completed in 72 days, the rest of the task taking much, much longer. The Septuagint helped bridge the textual criticism gap related to the Hebrew Old Testament. Now let's take a look at a New Testament comparison. We now have close to 5,000 Greek manuscripts, along with some 13,000 copies of portions of the New Testament. Besides all this, much of the New Testament can be produced from quotations of early Christian writers. To be skeptical, therefore, of the text of the New Testament is to allow allow all classical antiquity to slip into obscurity. Why? Because no other document of the ancient period is as well established bibliographically as the New Testament. Sir Frederick Kenyon, who was director of director and actually principal librarian of the British Museum, and second to none in authority for issuing statements about ancient manuscripts, had this to say, quoting now, beside number, the manuscripts of the New Testament differ from those of the classical authors, and this time the difference is clear again. In no case is the interval of time between the composition of the book and the date of the earliest extant manuscripts as short as in that of the new testament the books of the new testament were written in the latter part of the first century the earliest extant manuscripts which by the way just were in the main trifling scraps accepted are of the fourth century say about 250 to 300 years later now this may sound like a considerable interval But it is nothing to that which separates most of the great classical authors from their earliest manuscripts. We believe that we have in all essentials an accurate text of the seventh extant place of the renowned Sophocles. Yet the earliest substantial manuscript on, on which it was based was written more than 1,400 years before the poet's death. For Caesar's Gallic Gaelic War, Gaelic War, which was composed by the way, 58 to 50 B.C., there are several extant manuscripts, but only nine or ten are good. And the oldest is some 900 years later than Caesar's day. Of the 14 books of the Histories of Tacitus, 8100, only four and one half survive. Of the six books of his Annals. Ten survive in full, and two in part. The text of these extant portions of Tacitus, two great historical books, depends entirely on two manuscripts, one of the ninth century and one of the 11th. And if you make yourself a comparison chart, which I've done, uh, you'll find four renowned writers from antiquity, antiquity compared over against the New Testament. And uh, as I found in my chart, the writings of Tacitus, Suetonius, Herodotus, and Aristotle did not compare with the New Testament. And I will read you very quickly what I came up with. First of all, across the top of the page, I had the authors, Tacitus and his book Annals, Suetonius. Davidus, Caesarean, Herodotus, and his history, Aristotle, and then the New Testament. And then we compared when they were written, respectively, 100 A.D., 160 A.D., 425 B.C., 322 B.C., and the New Testament, 45 to circa 96 A.D. Now let's look at the earliest copy as we continue to compare earliest copy of Tacitus, 1100 A.D., Suetonius, 950 A.D., Herodotus, 900 A.D., Aristotle, 1100 A.D., and then the New Testament, 350 A.D. So you can compute the time spans. Tacitus, 1,000 years. Suetonius, 790 years. Herodotus, 1,325 years. Aristotle, 1,422 years. And then the New Testament. Only two hundred fifty-four years, and how about the number of copies of each of these? Tacitus twenty copies, Suetonius eight copies, Herodotus eight copies, Aristotle five copies, and the New Testament more than a thousand copies. So, a comparison indicates the New Testament favors so so uh, more authentic. Than the writings of Tacitus, Suetonius, Herodotus, Aristotle, etc. All right, chronology of the major New Testament manuscripts. Let's see what we can find from the experts. First, John Ryland's manuscript, A.D. 130. Uh, it's uh, those manuscripts, plural, by the way, are the oldest fragments of the New Testament. John Ryland discovered. Certain papyri dated A.D. 130, which has proven to be the oldest of all New Testament fragments. The papyri contained most of the Gospel of John, and the dating of the fragments confirmed the Gospel was written in the latter part of the first century. The New Testament was oh, completed in circa 96, and the Gospel of John in circa 85. All right, papyri, let's see what a papyri is when it's made from a plant and they press them together and thus form a written surface. The surface being organic made for great longevity. Papyri-like vellum manuscripts were discovered often in interesting and mysterious way. One such discovery took place in Egypt when two archaeologists searching for an ancient tomb uncovered a door guarded by several stuffed crocodiles. When carrying the crocodiles out of the tomb, one was dropped and burst, revealing numerous papyri. Inside were many copies of several New Testament books and various uh, etymology books, which led to further discoveries of principles involved in the syntax and grammar of the Koine Greek. the Chester Beatty papyri, dated circa A.D. 200, represents a collection of papyrus and parchments, three of them containing major portions of the New Testament. These were discovered in 1931 when Chester Beatty bought them from a group of Arab treasure hunters who had found them in a rubbish heap. The heap contained slates and broken pottery along with the papyri. Beatty was a millionaire who paid what many thought to be an exorbitant sum but not to Mr. Beatty. The papyri were originally housed in a museum at the University of Pennsylvania. Then the Bodmer papyrus, the second, dated between 150 and 200, contains most of the book of John. And then there's Codex Sedaticus, dated circa 350, which contains most of the New Testament, lacking Mark sixteen nine through twenty, and John seven fifty three through chapter eight verse eleven. This codex was discovered in a wastebasket. Discovered in a wastebasket of all places, in a Russian monastery by a man named Count Vlantuchinard, Tishendorf. Excuse me, Tishendorf. On a trip to the Near East in eighteen forty four, he stopped at Saint Catherine's Monastery to spend the night, where he noticed the monks placing certain old vellums in a waste basket the vellums were to be ultimately used as fuel for their fireplace after rummaging through the vellums he noted the importance of the ancient documents now the count was not allowed to buy or borrow the manuscripts but he was allowed to copy 129 pages After lengthy failed negotiations, the original vellums were given to the Russian government, and very fortunately, in 1933, the communist regime, the communists decided they had no need for Bibles, old or new. So Codex Sinaiticus was later sold to the British Museum for a hundred thousand pounds sterling. And then there was Codex Vaticanus, dated 335, containing nearly the entire New Testament. With the discovery of Codex Sinaticus, interest in ancient New Testament manuscripts peaked. Count Van Titchendorf and a friend named Trigellus led a search for Codex Vaticanus. They thought, well, well last known, uh, they existed in the library of Pope Nicholas. Nicholas had been exiled to Savona, when Napoleon in 1809 defeated the Vatican army. As it turned out, the library had been returned to the Vatican in 1815. However, little, little analysis of the contents of that manuscript had not been done. Codex Vaticanus was jealously guarded by the Vatican. Uh, Tregellus, a professor of the New Testament at Leipzig, sought permission to examine the document, And the Pope indeed gave permission for Trigellus to study the manuscript for six hours. The year was 1843. Twenty years later, Tischendorf was also granted similar privileges. Neither man was permitted to copy the document, but only to examine the contents. In three months, Tischendorf memorized the entire document, returning home each evening where he recorded the day's memorization. Upon his return to Leipzig, he published the results of his finding. So close was his text to the original that Pope Pius IX in 1859 ordered the photography, the photographing, in other words, photographing the document. In that way, it became the property of the world and is still one of the most valuable manuscripts of the Word of God. And then there was Codex Alexandrinus, dated circa 400, which contained almost the entire New Testament. In 1621, Cyril Lucar became the patriarch of the Greek Orthodox Church and the document was taken to Constantinople. Lucar had succumbed to the influence of Calvinism when he agreed to present the manuscript to the court of King James. The presentation was made just 15 years after the KJV had been translated and that was a pity. What a pity! It had come so late because this very ancient Codex would have helped immensely in the correct rendition of the English text. And then we have the Codex Ephraimi, or Amy, dated circa 400. It contains every book of the New Testament except Second Thessalonians and 2 John. Ephraimi, is so named because of the way it was discovered. Father Ephraimi was a favorite of Catherine Domenici, a colorful Italian family associated by marriage with many of the great houses of Europe. In 1834, a young student of the Bible had heard of the father's fame, so he sought and received permission to study his sermons. At the National Library in Paris, while he was examining one of the sermons, he noticed that the father had written over a very old vellum. The student was very alert and became more interested in what the father had erased, rather than the sermon. Through the use of chemicals, the manuscript was restored. Since that time, the document has been removed from the Medici, uh, Medici, excuse me, stacks to where it belongs in the Bible stacks at the library in Paris. All right, then they have Codex Visay, dated 450. Contains the Gospels in the Book of Acts, not only in Greek, but also in Latin. And then there's Codex Washingtonensis, dated 450 and perhaps 500 containing the four Gospels in the following order, Matthew, John, Luke, and Mark. And then we have Codex Claremontanus, dated circa 500. And it contained the Pauline Epistles. It is, by the way, a bilingual manuscript, as is Codex Washingtonensis. All right, in summary, the time gap between the original manuscript, we call that the autograph, and the extant copies called for the conclusion, quote, The New Testament is far more authentic than Greek classical history. Most of the Greek classical authors are dated 1,000 years or more before the author's death. In the case of the New Testament, two of the most important manuscripts were written within 300 years after the New Testament was completed, and some virtually complete or virtually complete books as well as there were extensive fragmentary manuscripts dating back to one century from the original writings. Next to the New Testament, there are more extant manuscripts of the Iliad, 643, than any other book. The New Testament has about 20,000 lines. The Iliad has about 15,500 lines. Only 40 lines or 400 words in the New Testament are in doubt, whereas 764 lines of the Iliad are questioned. This 5% textual corruption compares with one half of 1% for the New Testament. Does archaeology confirm the authenticity of the Bible? Well, let's see what William Albright had to say. Quoting now... As critical study of the Bible is more and more influenced by the rich new material from the rich ancient Near East, we shall see a steady rise in respect for the historical significance of now neglected or despised passages. And that's for both the New and Old Testament. Okay, let's take a look at scientific data. Scientific data also provides evidence of scriptural authenticity. A few examples... The movements of planets was known long before science documented the occurrence of light and how it does not dwell in a place, but a way. For science today teaches that light involves motion at 186,000 miles a second. Job 38, 31-32 and Job 38, 19 said this long ago and I'll read what was said. Job 31 I'm sorry, chapter 38, verse 31 and 32. Can you bind chains of the clusters of the stars called Pleiades, or loose the cords, the constellation of Orion? Can you lead forth the signs of the zodiac in their season, or can guide the stars of the bear with her young? And then verse 19. Where is the way where light dwells? And as for darkness, where is its abode? static electricity exists and can be formed as we know by the condensation of vapor. We also now know that water rises and then again falls as rain. The Bible provided this information some 700 years, excuse me, 700 years before Christ was born. Jeremiah 10:13. When he uttereth his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens, and he causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightnings with rain and brings forth the wind out of his treasures. All right, the earth is a sphere that we know. Isaiah 40 verse 23, written somewhere around 700 or so, and I'll quote, It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. The earth rotates on its axis, for the earth is round and travels around the sun. Notice what Luke said in 1731, and then dropping down to verse 34. In that day he will, he shall be up on the housetop and his stuff in the house. Let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. I tell you, in that night there shall be two men in one bed, the one shall be taken and the other shall be left. A comparison in that day with others in that night at the same time, I suspect. Alright, Genesis 1 8, and God called the firmament heavens, and there was evening and morning a second day. Air has weight, we know, well Job twenty-eight said, to make the weight of the for the winds, and he weighed with the waters by measure. Alright, winds have circuits which they follow. Well, and they follow them religiously for an expression. Ecclesiastes 1, six: The wind goeth toward the south and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. Messages can be sent by electricity, we know, or in this primitive statement, by lightning. Job 38.35 Can thou send lightnings that they may go and stay unto thee? Here we are, question mark. Our doctors of medicine have often marveled at the detail the Bible provides concerning sanitation and health practices. In Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there are great details provided with reference to quarantining communicable diseases. Leviticus 13.45, And the leper in whom the plague is, his clothes shall be rent and his head bare, and he shall put a covering upon his upper lip and shall cry. Unclean, unclean. And Leviticus 13.46, All the days wherein the plague shall be in Him, and He shall be defiled. He is unclean. He shall dwell alone. Without the camp shall His habitation be. There are many prophecies which Jesus fulfilled, and many more which will later be fulfilled. And I'll just pick a few. Remember, we do have a doctrine of He, H E where there are 353 prophecies made in, of Jesus and how they were fulfilled. But let's just pick a few here. That Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5.2 But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old. From everlasting. That Jesus would be born of a virgin. Isaiah 7.14 Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And shall call his name Emmanuel. That Jesus would be believed on by Gentiles. Genesis 12.3 And I will bless them that bless thee. And curse them that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Or Isaiah 65, 1, I am sought of them that ask not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. I said, Behold me, behold me unto a nation that was not called by my name. That Jesus would teach by parables. Psalm 78, 2, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. And then Matthew 13, 34, reading through verse 36, All these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spake He not unto them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, saying, I will open My mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and His disciples came unto Him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field, that And that Jesus would perform miracles, of prophecy. In Isaiah 53, excuse me, Isaiah 35, 3, verse 4 and 5. Strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. Even God with recompense, He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the dead shall be unstopped. Matthew 9.35 And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. And then we have the prophecy that Jesus' disciples would forsake Him. In about 520 years before Jesus, Zechariah in chapter 13, verse seven, said, "Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts, Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. And then mark fourteen forty nine and fifty, I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and ye took me not, but the Scriptures must be fulfilled. And they all forsook Him and fled. That Jesus would be betrayed for thirty pieces of silver again by Zechariah 520 years or so before Christ. The price of a slave. And that the money would be used to purchase a potter's field. So verse (coughs) in. Zechariah that Jesus would be betrayed for thirty pieces of silver was in Zechariah eleven thirteen, and the Lord said unto me, Cast it unto the potter, a goodly price, that I was prized at of them, and I took the thirty pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. A record of fulfillment in Matthew twenty seven seven through nine, and they took counsel. And bought with them the potter's field to busy strangers in. Wherefore that field was called the field of blood unto this day. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet saying. And they took the thirty pieces of silver. The price of him that was valued. Whom they of the children of Israel did value. And then that Jesus would be rejected despised and bear our sorrows and transgression. Isaiah told us about that in Isaiah 53, verse 2, reading through verse 6. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him there is no beauty, that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus himself predicted he would be crucified and die on the cross. Matthew 20, verse 18 and 19. Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and discourage and to crucify. And on the third day he shall rise again. Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 32. And we shall read through verse 40. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were coming to a place called Golgotha that is to say, a place of a skull, skull. they gave him vinegar to drink, mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him, and parted his garments, casting lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture they did cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there, and set up over his head his accusation which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then there were two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And they passed by reviling him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save yourself if thou be the Son of God come down from the cross and then the prophecy that the sun would go down and there would be darkness between 12 noon and 3 p.m. certainly said amos in chapter 8 verse 9 and it shall come to pass in that day saith the lord god that i will cause the sun to go down at noon and i will darken the earth in the clear day matthew twenty-seven forty-five, a record now for the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And thus it was fulfilled what Amos said. And then that Jesus would be resurrected, said Hosea in chapter 6, verse 2, after two days will He revive us, In the third day He will raise us up, and we shall live in His sight. The record of that being fulfilled, Matthew 16, 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto His disciples how that He must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests of the scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. For He had said in Matthew twenty six thirty two, But after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. And indeed He did. The prophecy that Jesus's bones would not be broken is provided in Psalm 34:20. He keepeth all his bones and not one of them is broken. And then John records in 1933, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. Same prophecy and again another prophecy better said in Zechariah 12:10 that Jesus's side would be pierced what Zachariah again in 520 or so years before Christ. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the Spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall all look upon Me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for Him as one mourneth for His own Son and it shall be in bitterness for Him as one that is in bitterness for His firstborn. And then John 19.34 but one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side and forthwith and there came out blood and water. So many prophecies and many prophecies were fulfilled. One such being found in Psalm 69 verse 21, then also in Psalm 22 15 that Jesus would be thirsty and be given gall and vinegar to drink. Notice verse 21, Psalm 69, They gave me also gall for my meat, and my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. In Psalm 22, 15, My strength strength is dried up like a pot, sir, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. Record of fulfillment. John 19, 28 and 29, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture be fulfilled saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. That he would divide, or they would divide actually his garments and cast lots for them. In Psalm 22, 18 is so predicted. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Fulfillment, John 19, 23, 24. And twenty-four. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to every soldier a part, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said therefore among themselves, let's not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things therefore the soldiers did. And then the prophecy that Jesus' his body would not decay. Psalm sixteen, ten, and then fulfillment again in Acts chapter two, verse twenty six and twenty-seven. First the Psalm. For thou wilt not leave my soul in shield, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to seek corruption. Acts twenty-two, twenty-six and twenty-seven, therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad; moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither will thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. There are so many other prophecies documenting the authenticity of the Bible. I've only provided a few of more than three hundred remarkable prophecies—three hundred and fifty-three to be exact—and you can find those. Uh, on the internet under Pastor Mary's study books. So I only provided a few of the more than 300. Now we have looked at some of the documentation authenticating the Bible. So how did the early church determine what was real and what was not real? So we need to look at a point or two about uh, well, what we call canonicity. And in fact, I have a, a doctrine of canonicity which... I plan on certainly putting it on the internet and also the the podcast. I think it's on the internet already. All right, let's look at the subject, canonicity. A tremendous amount of literature appeared in the first three or four centuries, much of which claimed to be authoritative and inspired. So something had to be done to determine which material should be included in the canon. The early church fathers agreed with five criteria to determine What material was to be included? Alright, here we go. Was the book of divine origin? That is to say, does the book in its entirety purport to be from God? Was its claim to inspiration adequately sustained by the awareness of the writers that this was indeed sacred scripture? In other words, the internal evidence, the writers in their sacred work believed they were providing canon. All right, then we have documentation by quotation, our third. The New Testament contains numerous quotations from the Old Testament, made not only by Jesus Christ, but by virtually every writer of the Scripture. Then we have the law of public or official action, as in the case of the Old Testament. Mainly, was there a record of the priest reading from it in public? Such reading would serve to document the authenticity of the book being examined. And then external evidence was used in the sense of the Masoretic copious, only preserved for us that which all of us will seem to understand and to know as the canon. So we have then in the early church five criteria which I have just recited. And that was what they used to determine what goes into our Bible. Now I want to read from the Grolier Encyclopedia and the World Book, two secular sources. There we find rather unbiased descriptions of what is known as the pseudopedagrapha and the Apocrypha. Here we go with Grelier. The word pseudopedagrapha means books with false titles. This refers to books entitled to those of the Bible whose authors gave them the names of persons of a much earlier period in order to enhance their authority. The best known are three and four estrus and the prayer of Manassas, which are included in the Apocrypha. The term is applied to many Jewish and Jewish Christian books written in the period B.C. 200 to 200 A.D. Fragments of the Damascus document have been found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. The pseudepidograph are important, for they throw light on Judaism and early Christianity. All right, the Apocrypha are books of the Old Testament included in Roman and Orthodox Catholic Bibles as what we call Deuterocanonical, added to the earlier canon. All right, uh, and also added to the Hebrew Bible. And for most Protestant Bibles, it is excluded. All right, that is to say, the Apocrypha is excluded in most cases. Now let's read on again. Now I'm quoting again from O'Lear. It is not certain why the term Apocrypha, which means, by the way, hidden things, was originally applied to them, but they were considered less authoritative than the other biblical books because of their relatively late origin, 300 B.C. to A.D. 100. So, uh, Grenier has so said. Now let's look at what the World Book has said. The Apocrypha includes the first and second books of Estrus, Tobit, additions to the book of Esther, the Wisdom of Solomon, the Wisdom of Jesus, the Son of Sirach, Judith, Baruch, the Song of the Three Children, Susanna and the Elders, Bel and the Dragon, the Prayer of Manassas, and the first and second books of Maccabees. The Apocrypha is an important source for Jewish history, by the way, and religious developments in the 1st and 2nd centuries B.C. Now there are many other pseudopedagraphas, such as the Book of Mormons and devotionals and prayer books of the Christian Science Denomination, which are certainly accepted by some as biblical. There are also other Orthodox Catholic books accepted in their faith as supplemental to the Bible, although rejected by the early Roman Catholic Church. Paul, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, anticipated this problem and made a rather sarcastic remark in Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9. For though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said earlier before, or said before, so say I now again. Many man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. If you consider the copies available, age, and accuracy of the documents, it becomes quite obvious that we have the inspired Word of God, preserved for us and need no biblical, that is extra-biblical, revelation. Flavius Josephus was an unbeliever who, in Contra Opion, described the sacred book of the Jew. Clearly, canonicity was an accepted part of Jewish history. Not surprisingly, Josephus tells us, and he had no axe certainly to grind, that the Old Testament is the canon and has no need for pseudepedagraphum. Colonel R.B. Theme, in his book Canonicity writes concerning the Apocrypha under the heading The Rejection of the Apocrypha. One, the Apocrypha was never in the Hebrew canon. Every card indexing the canon of Scripture in the ancient world today listed only the Old Testament, but excluded the Apocrypha. Two, neither Jesus Christ nor any of the New Testament writers ever quoted from the Apocrypha. Never even once. Three, Josephus expressly excluded them from his list of sacred scripture in his book. He explained that these books were excluded from the canon because they were spurious. Four, these apocryphal books were never asserted to be divinely inspired or to possess divine authority in their contents. Five, no mention of the apocrypha was made in any catalog of canonical books in the first four centuries. It was not until the fifth century AD that they were slipped into the catalog. Six, no prophets were connected with these writings. Each Old Testament book was written by a man who was a prophet, either by office or by gift or both. Seven, these books contain many historical, geographical, and chronological errors. They so distorted and contradicted Old Testament narratives that in order to accept the Apocrypha, in order to accept the Apocrypha, one had to reject the Old Testament. Eight, the Apocrypha teaches the doctrines of upholds practices which are contrary to the canon of Scriptures. Let's look at what the colonel has said about some of these. Prayers and offerings for the dead. In 2 Maccabees 12, 41-46, not only are prayers offered for the dead, but monetary offerings are brought on their behalf and even recommended. I am quoting, by the way, from the Douay version, he says, of the Old Testament, uh, which is a revised version of the Vulgate. It is therefore a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead that they may be loosed from sin. And so on. Now let's see what else he said. Suicide is justified. Second Maccabee 14, 41-46 deals with the revolt against the Syrians led by the Maccabean brothers. The Apocrypha justifies this suicide and calls it a noble death. And then atonement and salvation by almsgiving. At least two of the books of the Apocrypha state that sins may atone, be atoned, uh, that is, atoned for, if you will, and salvation may be obtained by giving large donations. And then cruelty to slaves in Ecclesiastes 33, 25-29, not our Old Testament Ecclesiastes, but verses 25-29 through we read that the best way to treat a slave is to pile the work on him, and that, if need be, cruelty to slaves is fully justified. And then there's the doctrine of emanations. This is a cosmological concept characteristic of Gnosticism. It explains the word as an outflowing from one absolute source, but never uses the word God. And then the pre-existence of souls. The Apocrypha claims that the soul as well as the body is produced in procreation. We know that ultimately only God can give soul life. Now there are other fallacies in the Apocrypha such as hatred of Samaritans. Lying is sanctioned. Incantations are encouraged. Assassination is suggested. Seven angels are said to have the power of intercession. Purgatory is mentioned. Interestingly, neither the Roman or Greek Orthodox Church accepts all of the theology of the Apocrypha, but rather they have chosen to pick and choose, to pick and choose, and have therefore no absolute standard or canon. Much of that taught in the Apocrypha is vehemently opposed to sound Catholic teaching, and many of the early Church Fathers, without question, considered the Apocrypha as questionable, not to be considered as equal with the Bible. There has been far less controversy with reference to what represents the New Testament. All right, let's take a look at the criteria for New Testament canonicity. Summarized. All right, first of all, with reference to apostolicity, every book must be written by an apostle or someone close to an apostle. Reception by the early churches are being as being authentic. Consistency. Doctrines in the book must be consistent with the extant Christian teachings. And each book must give either internal or external evidence of divine inspiration. Alright, a word or two about the church councils. The church councils finally resolved all questions as to what constituted our New Testament. There was the Council of Laodicea, 336 A.D. The Council of Damascus, 382 A.D. The Council of Carthage, 397 AD. The Council of Hippo, 419 AD. The Council of Laodicea recognized and accepted all the books of the New Testament except Revelation. However, the next three councils included the Revelation into the canon. But they wrestled and they wrestled and they spoke for and against uh, various books of the Bible until they all came to an agreement, this is the canon. Now, the question of canonicity never came up again until the rise of liberalism in the 19th century, which led to our 20th century modernism. Now, we've provided a significant amount of information about authenticity. And I want to close by reading, at least in part, a sermon by James Kennedy entitled The Anvil. Here we go. If the Bible had not been written, many critics would have been out of work. It is the most attacked book written. Years ago, I saw a painting of a very large anvil, and around the anvil on the floor lay scattered, many shattered, smashed hammers, and underneath was written the words, The Word of God endureth forever. The anvil is an appropriate metaphor for the Word of God, which like the anvil has endured the attacks of numerous skeptics and unbelievers and yet still stands unscathed in spite of the onslaught of ages. Hammer away, ye hostile hands, your hammers break. God's anvil stands. The word of the Lord endureth forever. God in a supernatural way has sustained His word down through the centuries against the attacks of all ranks and classes of men. Numerous kings... With the scepter of state in one hand had taken up the hammer of unbelief. And with the other they attempted with all their power of government itself to smash the anvil of God. The cases are numerous. One of the early ones involved Herod, sometimes called Herod the Great. He gathered together the wise men to find out where the Messiah should be born. Their reply, it is written in the prophet Thou Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be least among the tribes of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth to me, who shall rule my people Israel, whose going forth has been from of old, even from everlasting. Thus said the prophet, thus declared the word of God. Then King Herod took up the hammer of his might, and sent forth his soldiers to destroy that promise and nullify the prophecy. They killed all the children, two years old and younger, in all the environs of Bethlehem. And the king said he had brought to naught the prophecy of the word of God. But God had warned Joseph in a dream. He took the child and his mother and fled into Egypt. And so the prophecy came to pass. The word of God was fulfilled. He that was to rule his people came forth out of Bethlehem after all. Another king, 400 years later, Constantine the Great, made Rome a Christian empire. At his death, Julian, his nephew, later to be known as Julian the Apostate, rose to the throne. He was determined to reestablish the pagan religions of Rome and set out to study the Scripture and with his army to disprove Christianity by disproving its prophecies, by bringing them to naught. When he saw the prophecy concerning the destruction of the temple, he determined that he would build the temple again, disproving the scripture. He sent forth the money and the men to do just that, but there was a great earthquake that destroyed the work before it was hardly started. Undaunted undaunted, he started again, but this time from fissures in the earth there came forth great clouds of gas, which were ignited in great explosions, terrifying the men. His men fled from the scene, refusing to return in spite of all the inducements offered. Hammer away, ye hostile hands, your hammers break, God's anvil stands. Hitler, who called himself a complete pagan, and Mussolini, who declared the church would soon cease to exist, set themselves obstinately against Christ's church and the word of God. Hitler determined to uproot Christianity root and branch. Hitler's charred body was discovered in a bunker. Mussolini hung by his feet in the town square. The word of God goes on today. The word of the Lord endureth forever. Many of those breaking their hammers against the anvil were changed into avid defenders of the very word they hated. One such man was the brilliant and erudite Sir William Michael Ramsay. Oxford trained, born into a house of skepticism and atheism, his parents were wealthy unbelievers. He would determine that he would see the word of God demolished. Unlike the philosophers who discovered and made claims, he would use his training as an archaeologist to prove the Bible was the product of ambitious monks of the second and third century. After much, much, much study, he determined the Achilles' heel of the New Testament was the book of Acts, because it included the detailed accounts of Paul's missionary journeys with the names of places throughout the Roman world. The critical world waited expectantly. Even some Christians were fearful of his findings. Beginning in 1881, he labored indefatigably for 15 years following the routes laid out by Luke. In 1896, he produced his work, St. Paul, Roman Citizen, World Traveler. Much to the dismay of those scholars who waited for his finding, he said he had found Luke to be an astonishingly accurate guide for his journeys, and when he had followed his instructions, he had turned up the evidence which proved him right. For forty years he continued his excavations and writings, all to the increasing chagrin of the unbelieving world. He found Luke to be accurate in the minutest detail. Ramsey committed his life to, to the Christ, the Christ of the Scriptures, which he had found to be unfailingly sure. Then there was Colonel Robert Ingersoll, A famous skeptic and unbeliever, early in this century he met a general on the train as he was traveling to one of his many speaking engagements, which by the way were speaking engagements against the Bible. Excuse me. As they discussed theology, he told the general, you have great literary skills. Why don't you use these skills to demolish the myth and uncover the truth about this Jesus and show him as the The man among men. The general decided to take up the challenge and he began his research. As he searched, he found himself astonished that this present from, this peasant, excuse me, from Nazareth, from which no good thing could come, having never attended school, never earned any degrees, walked upon a mountain and delivers the most astounding sermon on human ethics the world has ever seen. This general considered, how can he know these things? His amazement increased until there at the cross he received the Lord as his Savior. The general's name was Lew Wallace, a hero of the Civil War and the author of Ben-Hur. An entire school devoted to skepticism of the Word was established in the early 19th century. They were determined to demolish all traditional views of the Bible. They said it was quite obvious Moses could not possibly have written the Pentateuch because writing had not been invented in Moses' day. About the time the school really got going, so also developed the science of archaeology. The spade of the archaeologist becoming the bane of the school of higher criticism. The postulation concerning the incipients of writing postdating Moses was soon disproved. According to the several digs. Writings found to have predated Moses by 1,500 years, thus shattering the notion that Moses could not write. The empire of Assyria, with its capital of Nineveh, was believed to never have existed except in the mythological Bible. None of the secular historians had written about Assyria. An archaeologist named Layard went to Mazul, where in an ancient dig he found a brick from the name Sargon, are with the name Sargon written thereon. He sent it to the museum in Paris where it was declared to be fraudulent because the empire never existed. The yard later dug up the whole city of Nineveh and discovered thousands of inscriptions detailing the history of Assyria. Likewise, the Hittites mentioned over 40 times in the Bible were believed to be mythical. In 1906, Hugo Winkler Uncovered in central Turkey, the city of Burgoskoi, which turned out to be the capital of the empire of the Hittites. The story about Jericho and Joshua was a nice, very really nice, laughable story that made a nice song, but it was not believed. Professor John Startang, in 1930, spent six years uncovering one layer after another until he reached the time of Joshua. The story of Joshua, even to the details of the walls falling inside out, was proven as a fact. Furthermore, the city was burned, as the Old Testament declares. You know, the birth of Jesus was a familiar target. Luke was a frequent target of several critics. Scholars said there was no such thing as a census required by Rome. People were not required to return to their ancestral homes, said these same critics. A papyrus was discovered which said, "Quoting, because of the approaching census, it is necessary that all those residing for any cause away from their home should prepare at once to return to their own governments in order that they may complete the family registration of the enrollment and that the tilled, tilled lands may return to those belonging to them. So in conclusion, we have seen overwhelming data supporting the authenticity of both the Old and New Testaments. And yet there are those today who subjectively dismiss the historical accuracy of these books. Though the Old and New Testaments are not history books per se, their contents meet the test of history and stand head and shoulders above any other documents which claim to be historically accurate. Let us pray. Father, thank You for the opportunity to study authenticity. Guide us now and may God the Holy Spirit take that which I have presented. Make it real in order that we might become more like our Lord and Savior, even Jesus the Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen.